0: Section 32 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 16. The Gathering of the Clouds. Part 2. All the nobles of Piedmont flocked to his court, and many ambassadors of foreign kings, who thus testified to their continued recognition of Frederick as emperor in spite of the papal deposition. The Count of Savoy came to betroth his daughter to Manfred, the youngest of those natural sons of Frederick who figured at all prominently in the history of the day. Many favors were bestowed upon those cities and nobles who had remained faithful to the emperor, nor were those forgotten who had lost husbands or fathers in the disaster of Vittoria. His fame remained still undiminished, Indeed, the amazement and absorbing interest which he excited in the minds of men increased as he rose triumphant after his defeat and continued to defy the sentence of the Pope. The scriptures were searched for prophecies which by devious ways might be found to apply to his name. The great magician Merlin was said to have foretold that he should live in prosperity for 72 years— that nothing but the hand of God could strike him down. The more ardent of his supporters, drifting further and further away from the old doctrines and the established order of religious things, began to regard him as something more than an earthly potentate. He should come to be Lord of the world in spiritual as well as earthly things. He was the second Messiah, and Peter de Vinia, happily named, was the first among his disciples, the rock upon whom he should build his church. This strange and fanatical devotion was shared even by ecclesiastics of high position. The Archbishop of Capua, unable to reach the court through the bad state of the roads, wrote thus to Divinia, If the cup of this journey may not pass from me, I am ready to cast myself not only into the mud, but into the sea, that I may walk on the waters toward the Lord." And thou, Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. There were some who would have liked to see the new Messiah openly proclaimed. To have seen his trusted minister, assume the position which the Pope falsely held as the vicar of Christ. Do not hide your light under a bushel, wrote one to Davinia. Our Lord says unto you, Peter, you love me, feed my sheep. He has set you up in opposition to that false vicar of Christ who is abusing the power of the keys. Do not shrink from the burden because you are not used to it. Your honesty, your moderation, your strength recommend you for it. Our Lord will take no denial. You must answer, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee, thy will be done. But the minister whom Frederick had raised up from the dust to the highest post in the kingdom Upon whom he had heaped riches and honor, whom he had admitted to his confidence and intimate affection, was to prove himself more nearly allied to Judas than to that Peter who merely denied his Lord. The reasons of the terrible tragedy of his end are wrapped in gloom, but from many conflicting accounts we may accept that of Matthew Paris as most reliable and most generally credited in Europe. He was the only chronicler who wrote contemporaneously of the event, and his version is confirmed by Frederick's own letters. In the beginning of 1249, Frederick returned from Vercelli to Cremona, where he was seized with an illness. The imperial physician was in a Parmese prison, and Peter, who it was said had been bribed by the Pope, offered the services of his own physician to the royal patient. This functionary, probably himself in the Pope's pay, or merely obeying his master, mixed a strong and deadly poison in the draft he prepared. Frederick, however, had been informed of the plot, and said to Peter and the physician, My friends, my soul confides in you. Take care, I entreat you, not to give me poison instead of medicine. My lord, answered Peter, my physician has often given you wholesome and beneficial medicine, Why, therefore, do you now fear? Frederick scowled and turned to the physician. Drink half this medicine with me. The trembling man took hold of the cup and purposely spilt its contents on the floor. But a few drops remained, and Frederick commanded that these should be given to some criminals who were already condemned to the gallows. The wretches expired in horrible agony, and the physician was straightway taken out and hanged. A full council of nobles was immediately summoned to judge the greater culprit, and letters were produced which proved the Pope's connivance in the crime. The sentence of death was passed upon Peter, but not a speedy death. His eyes were put out, and he was led through several cities on an ass, while the crier proclaimed his treachery. But on the way to Pisa, whose citizens for some reasons bore him an inexorable hatred— and into whose mercy he was to be delivered for the final penalty, he wrought his own destruction by dashing his brains out against a stone pillar to which he was chained. His terrible downfall was long remembered in Italy, but Dante exculpates him from the crime and attributes his apparent guilt to the machinations of jealous rivals. Frederick, on reflecting on these circumstances, writes Matthew, grieved inconsolably and with abundance of tears, which is a pitiable sight in a person of such authority and such an age, and clasping his hands together exclaimed, Woe is me for my own bowels fight against me! This Peter whom I believed to be a rock, and who was the half of my life, laid a plot for my death. In whom shall I now place confidence? Where can I henceforth be safe, where happy?' His friends who sat around him joined in his grief with sighs and tears, and by this occurrence the Pope's fame was much deteriorated. But God alone knows the truth. From the scene of this tragedy Frederick, stricken in spirit by the treachery of his trusted friend, returned to his kingdom in the March of 1249. But he had not yet had his fill of grief, for the news of another disaster followed hard on his heels. Enzo, the best beloved of his sons, the gallant knight, the fearless soldier, the troubadour, the winner of all hearts, was captured by his enemies and consigned to a lifelong captivity. While Enzo was ravaging the country round Parma, the Cardinal Octavian gathered the whole force of Bologna together and advanced against Modena. Enzo dashed back to the help of the besieged town, was met for once by the papal forces in the open field, and after a long and sanguinary battle, was utterly defeated, and with over a thousand of his men, led a prisoner to Bologna. Frederick threatened the city with destruction, but to no avail. Promised to encircle its walls with a ring of gold, if only it would restore his son to him. The citizens refused all ransom, and he dared not carry his threat into effect and besiege the city, lest the enraged townsmen should put Enzo to death he could only wait, in the hope that some day he should be able to enforce a general peace from all his enemies in which the release of his son should be included. That release never came, and Enzo languished in his prison for three and twenty years. He was treated with great consideration, for even among his enemies his personal charm exerted its sway and procured him many friends amongst the higher citizens. A noble maiden named Lucia Vidalgo became enamoured of him and solaced him in his captivity for several years. Once he almost managed to escape, was concealed in a cask and conveyed to the gates of the city. But one of his long golden locks was hanging outside the cask and attracted the attention of the guards. His treatment henceforth became more rigorous until death released him in later middle age. He was buried by his captors with all the honors befitting his rank, and his tomb is still to be seen in the Dominican church of Bologna. Innocent, meanwhile, freed from the restraining influence of King Louis, who had departed to Palestine, redoubled his efforts to bring his enemy to destruction. He turned all his energies to the task of shaking Frederick's power in the kingdom, which still remained firm in its allegiance. He anticipated his own victory by bestowing its territory upon his adherents, and by issuing a number of new laws for its government. The papal fulminations were again repeated against all who should continue to regard Frederick as king. Every bishop or priest who should dare to accept a favour from him was to be deprived for ever of his office. All cities and nobles who espoused his cause were to be stripped of their privileges and to be tainted with everlasting infamy. The adherents of the deposed monarch were to be outlawed from all the rights of citizenship, were to be outcasts against whom every man might raise his hand. But those who should rise against Frederick should be shriven of all their sins. Frederick himself was driven to ruthless severity by these measures and by the sedition which the begging friars preached in every corner of the kingdom. All traitors who were proved to be guilty, they must be condemned by the mouth of two witnesses, for justice must still be maintained, were to be hung. The friars who were crawling about the land like crabs were no longer to be imprisoned or banished, but burnt alive. The Pope could do little to shake the loyalty of the kingdom. In central Italy, the Emperor's cause was still triumphant. Cardinal Regnier was defeated at Civita Nuova with the loss of two thousand men, Cardinal Capoccio was routed a few months later. Town after town fell into the hands of the emperor's captains. The conflict became more violent and ruthless between the rival forces as each month went by, and central Italy became a scene of carnage and desolation. In Lombardy also, the fortunes of the emperor were in the ascendant. Cremona had won a great battle over Parma, had captured her Caroccio and some thousands of her soldiers, Eccelino de Romano had reduced the strongest castle of the Marquis of Esti, Piacenza, which had been among the most stubborn of the rebellious cities, had proclaimed her allegiance to the emperor, Milan and Brescia were losing heart and becoming feeble in their aggression. In Christendom, the mass of public opinion was becoming warm in his favor and disgusted with the violence and blind fury of the Pope's hostility. In the pages of the English Chronicler we find entries such as this. By some it was positively affirmed that the Pope eagerly desired above all things to overthrow Frederick, whom he called the Great Dragon, in order that, he being trampled underfoot and crushed, he might more easily trample down the French and English kings, and the other kings of Christendom, all of whom he called petty princes and the little serpents, who would be frightened by the case of the said Frederick, and might despoil them and their prelates of their property at his pleasure. These speeches, together with the enormous deeds which bore powerful evidence to the meaning of his words, generated offence in the hearts of many, and strengthened the justice of Frederick's so that his cause began to improve daily. A more definite ground for displeasure against the popes was the ruin they had wrought to the cause of the church in Palestine. What had the popes done for Christendom in these latter times, men asked, that might be compared with the emperor's achievement on his crusade? If the fruits of that achievement had been lost, it was because the partisans of the pope had broken the truce which Frederick had made with the sultan and because the persistent enmity of the popes had prevented Frederick from again taking the cross. The emperor had still continued to aid the crusaders, had maintained a force in the east under his marshal, had interceded with the sultan of Egypt, had secured the release of a great number of French prisoners. He was now helping King Louis in his crusade by sending him vast stores of provisions, in spite of the heavy demand upon his resources made by his wars. He, was the one monarch who, by virtue of his material power and the high prestige which he enjoyed among the infidels, might restore the holy land to the Christians. He had offered to spend his life in Palestine in the fulfillment of this object if the Pope would give him peace. What had been innocent's conduct in the matter? men asked. He had refused to grant peace to the Emperor, in spite of the intercession of King Louis and Queen Blanche, He had diverted the money which had been contributed by Christendom for the Crusades to the prosecution of his own schemes against the Emperor. He had obtained more money by selling to many who had taken the cross an absolution from their vows. He had still further depleted the ranks of the Crusaders by commanding all those who had taken the cross in Germany and Italy to turn their arms against Frederick instead of against the Turks. The disastrous defeat of King Louis in Egypt raised the resentment against Innocent to a dangerous height. He was accused by the French of being the sole cause of the ruin of the expedition and of the disgrace of the French crown. The two brothers of Louis, journeying home from Acre, had threatened to bring the whole French nation about the Pope's ears if he did not straightway make his peace with the Emperor. Innocent's position became more insecure every month. Those nobles of Arles who had formerly been his protectors were returning to their rightful lord. He sought leave from England to take up his abode at Bordeaux, but met with decided refusal. Bordeaux was too near to London, and Englishmen had no mind to see the Pope in their own country. With his arms triumphant in northern Italy, with the half of Germany still holding firm to its allegiance, With his powerful western neighbor bidding fair to make common cause with him against the Pope, it might seem that the emperor would yet wrest an honorable peace from his foe. But Frederick himself knew that the smiles of fortune had come too late. He had turned his face to the wall. He was sick unto death. End of Section 32